growing up, we spent a lot of time traveling around in the RV. That's how I learned the geography of the southeastern part of the United States, was by the RV. And I remember one vacation that we took to Kentucky. I remember a lot of horses, lots and lots of horses. And I remember either white or black fencing going around all of these pastures, that wooden fence that you've seen so many times in images. But one of my favorite memories of that trip was when we went to Mammoth Cave National Park. This is a park that preserves today the, the known largest cave system in the world. It's 400 miles, and there's still more that they haven't investigated yet. But my family took a guided tour with one of the rangers, and we went down into the cave, and we went into this cavern. Enormous. Enor it was huge, huge cavern down here in Mammoth Cave. And the tour guide wanted us to know just how far below the ground we were. So they turned out the lights. Absolute darkness. Pure darkness. I knew there was someone standing next to me, but at that moment, I, I, I didn't know where they were. It was very disorienting, very disconcerting. And then the guide instructed us to put our hands up in front of our faces couldn't even see the outline of my own hand. Absolute darkness. We needed someone to turn on the light so that we could see our way out. This scripture today starts with that analogy of light and darkness. It says that the people walked in darkness and they saw a great light. I experienced that literally in the cave, but I think many of us have experienced that metaphorically in our own lives. I think all of us have been in a situation where that darkness felt so oppressive, just down on us, and we needed someone or something to bring that light for us to find our way out. When we last left off in our story two weeks ago, I said that the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms and that two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, created the southern kingdom that they named Judah. That included Jerusalem and the temple. And then I said that the northern kingdom had the other ten tribes, that that was the nation of Israel now, and their capital was now Samaria. I also mentioned that there were no kings in the northern kingdom that did right in the eyes of the Lord, not one. Every single one of them did things they weren't supposed to do. And the prophets were telling the people and the kings, you got to stop worshiping these other gods. you got to worship the Lord alone. And by the way, stop making these alliances with these kings out there when God is your king. In 722 or 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. Because the priests had warned the people, don't be worshiping these foreign gods, don't have these alliances, the people that were now in exile began to understand and began to interpret the exile as God's punishment for them worshiping foreign gods and for having these allegiances. But I want to talk to you for just a moment about what the exile looks like, how an exile was done at that time. 
What Assyria did was they took out, they, what you want to do is you want to erase national identity. That's what you want to get rid of. So they take the people out of the conquered, the conquered nation of Israel. You take out all your leaders, your priests, your artisans, those who were of scholarly level, those who were rich, those who were powerful, those who had influence. You take them out of that nation and you relocate them somewhere else. So who's left behind in the northern kingdom in Israel now? The poorest of the poor who have no influence no say. And then Assyria takes the rich and the powerful from another nation that they have conquered and they take them into exile into the land of Israel. So now we have the poorest of the poor of Israel living with the powerful from another foreign nation. That's what exile looks like. Now the southern kingdom of Judah watched all this. They saw all of this happen. They heard the warnings. They knew what was coming. They knew they saw their cousins being sent off into exile. They saw it. They saw it all happen. And they said, all right, now wait a minute. How do we keep that from happening to us? The southern kingdom of Judah was fortunate to have at least a few kings that did right. Not all of them. Not all of them did, but they had a few. And one of those was named Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Everybody say Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was known for his religious reforms. He went in and he said, okay, all these holy places to all these other gods, cut them down, get rid of them, wipe them out. We're going to refurbish the temple because it had fallen into disrepair. And we're going to centralize worship back to Jerusalem here in the temple. His reforms were wide-reaching. They reached, they reached far. They were expansive. He did good in the eyes of the Lord. This text that Jean read for us, Many scholars, not all scholars, but many scholars agree that this song, really what it is, was written during Hezekiah's reign. Because it starts by saying the people walked in darkness and then they saw a great light. That re refers to his religious reforms, bringing the people back in. But the song was written about an heir. So it would have been about Hezekiah's son being born. And what a joyful occasion that was. The people had high hopes for the son. He was called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those were titles that were used in that day and age to refer to kings. This son was recognized as such. So what we have here in this song is hope and joy. As Christians, we read this same passage and we also see hope and joy. The Gospel of Matthew quotes this passage and calls it a prophecy referring to the Messiah. We see Jesus as the Messiah, a humble child born to a young peasant girl in this passage. I mean, this time of year, especially next month, every time we hear Handel's Messiah on the radio or recording, we're going to hear those words, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we hear these words here connected to Jesus, do we not? We hear those words here.
our darkness is very similar to Israel's and Judah's. We have a tendency to be tempted by other gods, do we not? That are competing for our attention with the Lord. We also make alliances with the wrong influences in our lives. We also need that light to come into that darkness and show us a way out, and that light is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. There is hope. There is joy. There is grace. Grace. Grace, 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 grace. Grace, 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 grace. There's hope and joy and grace in this passage, but there's also challenge. There's also challenge in this passage, and and we're going to come back to that in just a minute, I think. Yes. Okay, please forgive me. Here, here today, at Community United Methodist Church, we have joy and peace and grace and hope here today, correct? In the passage, it says, for unto us a child is given, unto us a child is born. A child has been given to us. Not the son of a king, not the Messiah, but a son entrusted to us to raise up in the faith of Jesus Christ. A son that we will walk with, worship with, learn with, as all of us learn how to be a more effective disciple of Jesus Christ. This morning we celebrate Devin as the son that has been entrusted to this church for this church to bring up in faith, to show him by action and words what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is hope and joy and grace here in this place today. But as in the passage, hope, joy, and grace, there is also challenge. There's also challenge in this passage because it says that this heir, that the throne will be established and upheld with justice and with righteousness. And let me tell you, Hezekiah's son did not do that. There was hope for it, but the heirs did not do a very good job in the justice and righteousness department. Jesus, great with justice and righteousness. He ate with sinners. He healed the sick. He touched the people who were untouchable in that society. He taught the religious leaders, no, 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 religion is not about rules and breaking rules, and worship is not about, you got to do A, then B, then C, no, no, no. It's about love. Love your neighbor. Love God. Loving your neighbor is justice. That right there is justice. Loving and serving your neighbor is justice. Loving God is the first step to righteousness, which is living in right relationship with God. Jesus was the example of justice and and righteousness. Jesus is the example of justice and righteousness. How are we doing with that? With justice and righteousness? How are we doing? There was a video going around in social media. It started out with the Today Show and it went around for the last couple of weeks. A young, a young man, he was a senior in high school, Atley High School in Virginia. His name is Sepp Shirey, and he has cerebral palsy. He has to walk with crutches. But he grew up in this town and was connected to the football teams in this town. And so on the last game of his senior night, they wanted to give him an opportunity to play in the football game. And so the coaches from both sides agreed, okay, here's the plan. We're going to let Sepp come out 
He's going to take the ball. He's going to go about two or three yards. And then the, de the defenders are going to do, I think it's called a two-touch, two-handed touch that counts as a tackle. I, I don't understand that part. But that's, that was the plan. That's not what happened. Because Sepp took the ball, not only his teammates, but the opposing players started cheering and clapping and running alongside this young man. And you see this video of him shuffling and he's dragging his feet. He has to drag his feet and it's a struggle for every step that he takes. And he shuffles for 80 yards. And my favorite part of that video, there's a teammate that, that's standing there like this to catch him as Sepp falls into his hands in the end zone. He scored an 80-yard touchdown in the last night of his senior year on the football team. That is justice and righteousness in my book. That is loving your neighbor and serving the needs of your neighbor. And you talk about righteousness, that is putting the person ahead of the game, even if that person is the opponent. How does community UMC do justice and, and righteousness? I say that we engage in both justice and righteousness, but I think we also have a lot we could do. There's more that we could do. In the last 11 weeks of confirmation, we talked about the tools that God gives us for us to engage in a life of justice and to have a life of righteousness. We talked about scripture and how to interpret scripture responsibly. We talked about, and I'm not going to give them a pop quiz, but the quadrilateral, reason, experience, scripture, and tradition. He got it. He got it. You put those four things together, and that's how we come to understand what we believe about God, about Christ, about faith, about anything related to our faith, is that we use those gifts that God has given us. God has given us those tools. We talked about the work of the United Methodist Church in justice, and we talked about how we can have a right life with God. This is what we talked about for 11 weeks. But confirmation is not a graduation in the life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It opens the door to a broader understanding of life in Jesus Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a lifelong journey. We don't ever stop. We don't graduate. We continue to learn what it is to live with justice, to be in right relationship with the Lord. We continue to learn about love. We continue to learn about hope, joy, grace, peace, forgiveness, and grace. We continue to learn those things. It all comes back to grace. Every bit of it comes back to grace. It's God's love for us that we don't earn in any way, that we don't merit in any way. It's just God saying, I love you. And what do we say in this church? God loves all people period. And it's all about grace. And here's the thing. It's grace that gives us the strength to live in justice. It is grace that gives us the inkling to be in right relationship with God. It is grace that calls us to be baptized. It is grace that calls us to be confirmed. It is grace that calls us to be an active member of the church. Active member of the church. It is grace that gives us what we need to live the life that God has called us to in Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is joy. There is peace. There is forgiveness and mercy. 
and there is also justice and righteousness. Our passage calls us to all of that. It is our job to kneel at Jesus' feet and say, I want to do justice. I want to be in right relationship with God. I want to walk humbly with you, God, and I want to love mercy. Justice and righteousness through grace. That's it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.